0: Gonna start off this morning with a poll. Got a question for you guys. Raise your hand. How many of you have ever had any serious dental work done? Now talking like cavity filling, I mean like wisdom teeth, root canal. Wow. Maybe I should be giving a sermon on toothbrushing. <laughs> so a couple months ago, I got this toothache and being that I didn't want to spend any money or any time to go to the dentist, I just kind of ignored it. And so I ignored it for about a week until one night as I was going to bed, I was putting my head down to my pillow and all of a sudden it felt like somebody had taken a baseball bat and cracked me right in the jaw. I like screamed, there was like this throbbing pain, I woke up my roommates, I couldn't sleep all night, I was tossing and turning, grimacing, and so being that the responsible thing to do would be to call the dentist right away when I woke up, I instead ignored it, figuring maybe the pain will just go away or I'll get used to it. Well, being that that was a terrible plan, the next morning I woke up, called the emergency dental office in Roseville, said I need an appointment ASAP. So I went in, they took x-rays of my teeth, and they said what I was fearing which was that I was going to need a root canal. Now, I've seen Finding Nemo, I've heard the horror stories, I know that root canals are not supposed to be pleasant experiences, so this must have showed on my facial expression because the dental assistant had the nerve, pun intended, to tell me that root canals actually don't really hurt that bad nowadays. I said, what? She said, With the numbing agents and the technology, they're not really supposed to be worse than a normal cavity filling. And that felt good for about five seconds because what happened next was the dentist walked in. He took a look at my x-rays and said, and I quote, wow, I don't know if I've seen roots this messed up before, unquote. Not exactly what you want to hear your dentist say moments before surgery. See, as a lot of us know, probably all of us know, uh, the roots of your teeth... Is this thing working? There we go. Are supposed to look like this. Kind of like parentheses, a little crooked or a little curved, but symmetrical, pretty straight. The roots of my teeth look like this. They're crooked, bent, messed up, they're a hot mess. So what would follow was probably the most physical pain I've ever felt in a single moment of my life. I've had broken bones, had my wisdom teeth out, had concussions, and those all hurt for longer, and so they're probably worse. But in one specific minute, this was probably the most pain I had ever experienced. And if you don't know what a root canal is, it's this. You do the first step yourself. You get a big old cavity, and that's not like a I forgot to brush my teeth cavity. That's a I use my cereal with Red Bull instead of milk cavity. And it gets all the way down to the root and affects the root and the nerve of the tooth. And so it's dying, so they have to take it out. So they take a drill, and with what seems like all of their body weight, they lean down into your mouth and go, and go, all the way through your tooth until it gets to the root. And then they take that tool in the third picture and they put it down the canal of your root, hence the term root canal, until you can feel it in your jawbone. Only it's not that friendly little syringe looking thing. On this picture, it looks like a nail that they would pound into a two by four. If you have to get a root canal, I'm really sorry then. (laughs) I'm telling you this. They clean out all of the, the... the root tissue and then they fill your tooth up with filament and they put a cap on it and send you on your way. So when I was in this third stage, the extraction stage, I had an epiphany. I was on the chair, writhing in pain, kicking and screaming, or whatever you can scream when you're in the dentist's office, and the the dental assistant had my legs like she was holding them down and and telling me to stop and finally the dentist pulls out the tool and instantly felt this sigh of relief. It was like that feeling when you get home after a long day of work, you drop all your stuff at the door and you sink into your lazy boy. Like it was this, this instant relief where all of my pain was gone like that. And the dentist looks at me, he says, Luke, you feel better now? I go, aha, aha, which is dentist for I sure do, doctor. And he wipes off the tool on a paper towel, and he shows it to me. He says, this was your dead root tissue. This was what was causing all of that pain. And guys, I wish I would have taken a picture for you, because this thing was so, so tiny. Like, it was smaller than a breadcrumb. It was like half the size of a booger. And I had this slap-in-the-face moment where I realized I I was like, how could something so small, so seemingly insignificant, have such a large impact? Because it was crazy to me. This thing was six inches from my face, and I could hardly even see it. It was smaller, like I said, than a booger. Which, by the way, this is what you get when you ask the youth pastor to preach. I'm going to talk about rook canals and boogers. It was crazy to me that something so little could have such a big impact. But this is how Jesus talks about his kingdom in Matthew 13, starting with verse 31. He says, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all the seeds, when it grows, it has the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that birds come and perch on its branches. And then he continues, in verse 33, it says, he told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Now, many of us have read that parable, and when we read it, on the surface, it's pretty simple. Little things have big impact. Mustard seeds are little, they turn big. God's kingdom has big impact. Little things make big things. But when we look at the context, when we look at the background, we see that there's even more going on and there's more than what meets the eye. See, earlier in Matthew 13, we find out that Jesus is by the lake and he's talking to his disciples with a much larger crowd listening on. But he's talking directly to his disciples. We also know that in Matthew 10, He had already given the disciples the great commission, which is to go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, spread the word of God and the kingdom of God to the whole world. It would have been very easy for these disciples looking at their situation to feel discouraged. Even if it wasn't an all the time feeling, even if it was just a a thought that creeps into their head, it would have been very easy for them to get discouraged, to look and say, God, There's this whole world that you've told us we have to share your love with. The problem is the whole world kind of hates us. You've got the religious leaders actively trying to kill us. You've got the political leaders who are either oppressing us or just don't really like us. And then you've got pretty much everybody else who either can't stand us, wants nothing to do with us, or tolerates us. Then you've got the small percentage that actually likes us. God how in the world does this work out how are we 12 bragtag men supposed to share your kingdom with the whole entire world the odds are stacked against us how does this work out it would have been so easy for them to get this discouragement but jesus that gives this personal parable this personal message using everyday illustrations that they would understand. See, the guys would have totally understood the sowing and the reaping of the harvest in the field with the mustard seed, and the gals would have totally understood the yeast and how it works all the way through the dough. And so he says, guys, you know the mustard seed, right? Can we get the the next one? mustard seed, right? How little it is, size of a booger, it fits on your fingertip. When you plant that, you know it grows up to be the biggest of the tree, of the garden plants, so big that it's almost like uh, a tree, it gets to be 8, 10, 12 feet high, and birds can nestle in it because it's so thick. And then he says, gals, you know those little packets of yeast that you get from Cub Foods? Those things, if you work them into the whole dough, they expand and they multiply and it grows, and it's enough bread to feed over 100 people. And he says, guys, just like the mustard seed, just like the, the yeast, my kingdom is like this. It might not seem like much. It might not seem like it's expected, but it will grow. It will multiply. It will unfold into big things. See, the other part of it is that this also would have been a message to the people that were listening, the large crowd. Because the entire nation of Israel has been expecting Messiah. But let me tell you, they weren't expecting Jesus when he got there. See, they would have been expecting a powerful political presents to come in riding on some royal animal with power, might, wealth, splendor, and save the day. Instead, they got Jesus, born in a barn, penniless most of his life, sometimes homeless, had to make houses to make a living, and he came in, not riding on some royal elephant, but riding on a donkey, and took this group of 12 ragtag fishermen. Not the higher-ups, not the wealthy ones, not the leaders, but but the little guys. And it would have been a message to everybody, because with the benefit of hindsight, we know that he then changed the world forever. But they didn't necessarily know that was going to happen, or if they did, they couldn't have known the magnitude to which it was going to unfold. And so he would have also been saying to them, look, just like the mustard seed, just like the yeast promise you guys my kingdom is going to grow and as I was preparing for this, this sermon um, I was looking for illustrations as how to tell this, this principle and how this works in our life and go more than just my disturbing dental history um, I found this story that I remember I had been told uh, I don't know a while ago And it's about this 18-year-old boy. This 18-year-old boy who was a boot salesman in his uncle's store in Boston. Now, a little bit of background. He grew up opposed to the church, uh, didn't really want anything to do with God, was more concerned with himself, and really wanted to make a fortune in the shoe business. Um, He asked his uncle for a job, Uh, to try to crack into the business and his uncle reluctantly agreed on the condition that his nephew would go to church with him so he agreed they struck up a deal he went to church he got the job and at church he met his high school sunday school teacher named mr kimball and mr kimball had his heart set on winning this young man for christ mr kimball would describe this boy as one of the most spiritually dark teenagers he had ever met but after praying about the manor he arranged to visit him at the boot store. To use Mr. Kimball's own words, I was determined to speak to him about Christ and about his soul, and I headed down towards the store. When I was nearly there, I began to weather, wonder I ought to go in just then during business hours or not. See, I thought my call might embarrass the boy. I thought the other clerks would ask him questions about who I was or would tease him in my efforts for trying to make him a, a good boy. But in the meantime, I passed by the store, and discovering that he was in the back of the store alone, I determined to make a dash for it and have it over at once. I found him in the back part of the building, wrapping up shoes. I went up to him at once, and putting my hand on his shoulder, I made what I felt afterwards was a very weak plea for Christ. I don't know just what words I used, nor could the boy tell. I simply told him of Christ's love for him and the love Christ wanted in return. That was all there was. It seemed the young man was just ready for the light that then broke upon him. And there, in the back of that store in Boston, Dwight L. Moody gave his life for Christ. See, D.L. Moody didn't go on to be a famous shoe salesman to make millions in the shoe business. Instead, he went on to be an evangelist. And if you've never heard of D.L. Moody, maybe you have heard of the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, Christian college where tons of students have gone and learned more about God's word, his kingdom and his love. He went on to be an evangelist and tell people about Jesus and it's said that he helped convert thousands and some people estimate millions of people to Christianity. And it all started back in this little boot store in Boston with a nervous, timid Sunday school teacher. See, he said himself, if you remember in the story, that he just wanted to get it over with and that he felt like it was a weak plea. He felt like it was, ugh, he felt it was okay. He felt it was weak, insignificant, and in no way do I think he could have imagined the way that God would use that. See, he had a call, he felt a call, and he started with a little bit of obedience and a little bit of faith. And it maybe didn't seem like something special to him at the time, but God used that to save millions of people. It might start with a little action, but God's power and God's kingdom yields big results. Now, I don't know about you guys, but for me, sometimes, can be easy to feel like the disciples did. It can be easy to feel like there's just so much stacked against me, like I'm just, there's just one of me and so many of them or like the world is so against Christianity and so against Jesus and how am I supposed to make a difference? How am I supposed to be a light? How am I supposed to live it? And what I want to guy- encourage you guys is to remember Jesus' message to his disciples and have confidence in God's kingdom and in his timing and in his ability to use the little things. See. We've seen that he can turn a weak plea for Christ into an evangelist. We've seen that he can take five loaves of bread and two fish and turn it into a meal for 5,000 men plus their families. We've seen that he can take 12 ragtag little guys and turn it in to the biggest revolution our world has ever seen. And just like My root tissue that was tiny and I could hardly see, but dictated how my entire body felt. And just like the mustard seed, which starts out on the tip of your finger and grows up to be a a 12-foot plant, and just like the little bit of yeast that starts out in a packet from Cub Foods and works its way all through the dough, God can take the little things in our lives, the little guys, the little actions, the little faith, and use them in big, giant ways for his kingdom.